Please be seated. Man, those were, uh, those were epic passages from the Bible. Am I the only one who's like, man, I kind of just want to go home and let that be the Sunday morning, but we can't do that because that would be wrong on a lot of different levels. Um, this is really cool. The, the Old Testament passage and the, the New Testament passage are really similar because they're both these examples of somebody being in the synagogue or in the midst of the people teaching. And that passage in Ezra is such a beautiful passage, uh, and it helps us understand kind of what we're doing on a Sunday morning, particularly in sermons. They read the scriptures before all the people, um, just like they did, and then the people help give the sense of the scripture so it's understood clearly. Uh, So in our service, in our liturgy of the word in this first half of the service, the big deal is when scripture is read, and then the sermon is a, a way where we try to understand it, where we hope to get the sense of the scripture. So would you pray with me really quick? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these beautiful words we just heard, and we pray that you would help us to understand them clearly. Lord, give us the sense in a deep and beautiful and transformative way. In your name we pray, amen. When God liberated the people of Israel out of Egypt, he gave them a law, which is recorded in the Old Testament, for which the people were to have their whole lives revolve around. It was social, it was civil, it, it had to do with family, it had to do with everything. And one of the most beautiful and enduring things that God had commanded the people to do uh, in the law, the people of Israel, which distinguished them from all other people and even historically has distinguished the people of Israel, is that their life was to revolve around the Sabbath. And all Jewish life was to imitate God's creation of the world in cycles of seven. So every, after every six days of work, the seventh was what? Right, Sabbath, rest, you, you restored, you didn't work. And after every six years, the seventh year was a Sabbath year or a sabbatical, which is why certain people in certain jobs like the academy and sometimes pastors and sometimes other people get a sabbatical year. And it was like a mega Sabbath, uh, a really, really big Sabbath. And couple things you did here. The first was that on the sabbatical year, the Sabbath year, the land was to lie fallow and not be worked. So uh, I love how in Madison it's kind of in vogue to just let your yard just kind of be au natural and just kind of explode. Where I grew up in the south, all the lawns were super manicured, but it's like cool to just have, you know, your yard burst. That was what it was. It's like let the land just breathe. Stop farming it. Stop working it. Let it just grow. The other thing on the sabbatical year is all debt which had accrued between Jewish neighbors was to be forgiven, which is pretty epic. So there's time of huge restarting and rest and kind of like a a respawn for all the people. And after seven cycles of seven years, which how many years is that? 49. So on the 50th year, there was a mega, mega Sabbath called the Jubilee, which in Latin means 50. And God commanded that in the 50th year, this is in Leviticus 25, it talks about this, on the Day of Atonement, which is a really special day, somebody would blow a loud ram's horn, super loud so all the people could hear it. And as Leviticus 25 says, it meant that liberty was to be proclaimed throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. And this mega, mega Sabbath, the Jubilee, was all about rest, release, and freedom. Um, So a couple things happened on the year of Jubilee. One, the land got a break. So again, let it grow. Let it be au naturel. Quit farming. Quit, like, killing the land. Let it breathe. 
The second thing is that any land that God had originally and graciously given to the people, if it had been lost or sold or something, was to be returned to its original owner. So this is pretty cool. When God brings the people of Israel into the promised land, he gives them all this land, and it's equally divided between the tribes. So everybody gets this inheritance that they didn't deserve, they were just given. And if whether somebody made a dumb choice financially or sold it or something happened and it was lost at Jubilee, go back to the original owners. It's pretty wild. Finally, all Hebrew slaves were to be freed. Liberty throughout the whole land. Um, slavery in this day was a lot more like indentured servitude sometimes. So if you were in a really huge debt or you were super poor, one of the ways that you could pay your debt was to hire yourself as a slave to somebody. And it doesn't matter where you were at that term, when Jubilee hit, you're freed. Now, why do you think, if we were a small group, we would break up and talk about this, but why do you think God would command an entire people to do that? To put it another way, what do you think the benefits of all that would be? For one, it would mean creation and you would flourish. On a weekly basis, and on a seven-year basis, and on a generational basis every 50 years, it means you wouldn't burn out. Can you imagine what that would be like? Also, it would be the same for you, and it'd be the same for the land. So it means the land wouldn't burn out, which is pretty amazing. But it would also mean that the poor and the marginalized could never be exploited. So God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt, right? He hates slavery. And he, met, he set this up so the people would never, ever again be enslaved. It was a protection against it. So it protected people from burnout, from slavery, from the loss of their inheritance, and from poverty. It's pretty cool, right? Wouldn't that be sweet? Uh, if you know your Dust Bowl history, half of my family is from Oklahoma. If you know your Dust Bowl history or you've read The Grapes of Wrath, or if you've ever seen Ken Burns' documentary about the Dust Bowl, which I highly recommend, you'll know that in the Dust Bowl in the 20th century, the exact opposite of this happened. So the, the land was over-farmed out of greed, which led to the land not producing, which led to the owners of the farms having to sell their land to big corporations, which led to them being extremely impoverished, which meant that they could no longer live on the land and had to leave. And it led to, in our nation, depression, misery, death. It was awful. That is why God commanded the people to celebrate Jubilee. So that would never, ever happen. To proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants of the land. Do you see God's immense heart and care for the poor and the marginalized in those laws? It is all focused on the least of these. Isn't that cool? It's one of the values of our church, to be focused on the lost and the least, because God is. Can you imagine what it would be like if our culture practiced something like this? Many of us carry debt. Uh, it could be medical debt, could be student loans, could be credit card debt, but whatever it is, some of us got into that because we made stupid choices. Some of us have got into that because it was completely inevitable. Whatever the reason, you know debt feels like bondage. Amen? It is hard to carry. It casts a shadow on everything you do. Can you imagine a ram's horn being blown? Uh, I imagine like an 
Amber Alert, except it would be good if it happened in our day. And like everybody gets a text that's like, it's Jubilee year. And there's a little emoji of a ram's horn. And then just feeling, can you imagine what that would feel like to feel all your burdens lifted, all your debt completely gone? I'm trying to imagine in the, the Grapes of Wrath, somebody going into a Hooverville and telling everybody, your land's back, your debt's taken care of, it's all good. Can you imagine the elation, the laughter, the tears? The year of Jubilee is beautiful, it's shocking, it's revolutionary, it's desirable, love it. Here's the catch though, and this is a massive, massive catch. To our knowledge, the people of Israel never celebrated it. It was never put into use. God commanded it, but the people either disagreed with it, or they ignored it, or they didn't have time for it. It was an inconvenience, and they never put it into use. And guess what happened? The Dust Bowl. The people went into slavery. Neighbor exploited neighbor. The poor were crushed. A few rich people got really rich. And instead of liberty, there was captivity. What? Turn with me to Luke 4 in your gospel passage. Now, just to give a little context here, this story marks the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So in Luke, this is his first sermon. So this is a really important moment. And in verse 16, it begins by saying that Jesus goes back to, his, to Nazareth, which is where he grew up. And as was his custom as a pious Jew, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. This would be like saying today, so Jesus went to his hometown of Kenosha and he went to church on Sunday morning. And back in uh, Jesus' day, synagogue worship, like I said, was really similar to our worship. So they actually had a liturgy. They had a cycle of readings that they would read from the Old Testament. And then after the reading, somebody would sit down, because you sat down when you taught back that day, and would, would give the sense. And so Jesus does this because it tells us he, would, he used to do this wherever he would go. So he's there in the synagogue, and Jesus is this trending, rising star. People have heard of him. He's kind of popular, and he's like coming back to his hometown. And someone hands him the book of Isaiah. Be like in the middle of our service, Jesus is here, and somebody goes, here, what do you want to read out of Isaiah? And Jesus gets to pick. So, second half of verse 17, follow along with me. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This scene is so dramatic. I love it. At that point, he'd just done what everybody else would have done. He read from Isaiah. He rolls it up. It says he gives it back to the attendant, the Bible guy who would take the scroll and put it away. And then he sits down. And now everybody's looking at him like, oh my gosh, why'd you choose that? What are you going to say? I imagine people are just like, verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Drops the mic. 
and I imagine audible gasps throughout the synagogue, right? Now, you might be following me on this. I hope you are. But what in the world is going on? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying Jubilee starts now. That's why I'm here. It starts with me. The portion that Jesus is reading from is Isaiah 61, and there's a little dose of Isaiah 58 thrown in there. This is the ones that he chose to read. And they are all about a new era and age of Sabbath rest and jubilee for the people, which would mean liberty to the captives and justice to the poor and the oppressed. And at the beginning of his ministry, he owns it and says, this is what I've come to do. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' baptism and how it was like his kingly anointing. What is Jesus anointed to do? Preach good news to the poor. Bring liberty and freedom and everything. A new age, a new dawn. This is Jesus blowing that ram's horn. What the people of Israel never did, and what no one else in any nation or country has really done for that matter, I would add, Jesus has come to do. Amen? Amen. That's pretty hardcore. Now, what should we take away from all this? It means the message of Jesus and knowing him is all about rest, release, and freedom. Jubilee has a name, and that name is Jesus. Remember, this is his first sermon. It's like a prologue to a musical, you know, where all the themes are in the very opening credits, and you're reading the, seeing whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is like that. This is emblematic of his whole ministry. And that went for everyone who was there in that synagogue that day, but it also goes for all of us. The gospel of Jesus is all about rest, release, and freedom. It's all about a new day, a new liberty, debt forgiveness, a second chance. He's come to liberate us who, whether through stupid decisions or just life, and it just happened to you, have gotten into a hole. Jesus is the one who comes back to pay debts and to give us the inheritance that we have squandered. And that, as Jesus says, is good news. It is good news. If you're new to Christianity, if you've been in Christianity for a long time and you've forgotten, it's good news. Amen? Amen. Because, you see, the jubilee is like, the ju jubilee that Jesus is bringing is like the jubilee in the Old Testament, but it's actually deeper and broader and even more beautiful than that. Because if you're thinking like, well, I'm not an Israelite landowner. What does this have to do with me? How does uh, Jubilee relate to me? It still does. You see, Jesus came to save us and liberate us from our captors. But he wasn't talking about landlords and loan sharks. Even though he cares about that. Jesus is actually teaching us that the greatest captor, the greatest debts we have is to sin and to death the deeper loan shark, the deeper landlord. Um, if you've ever read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus is constantly using analogies, talking about debts. It's like one of his favorite things to talk about when he speaks in parables. And he uses these analogies to talk about the deeper, more brutal and destructive debt that we all carry of sin and shame. So things we've done, things we have been done to us. And he would do this all the time. So Jesus would heal uh, because he deeply cared about physical healing but he would use that to teach about the healing that we need spiritually and forgiveness of sins. And he does the same thing with debt. So he talks a lot about jubilee and about debt to teach us 
about this deeper captivity and deeper forgiveness that he can bring. So let me just give you an example. I'm just going to read from one of his parables later on in Luke about this. This is from Luke 7, if you want to write it down. And this is a really beautiful story. Quote, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now let me pause there and set the scene because this is really, really dramatic. Jesus gets invited to try to put this in today's terms. He gets invited to like a bunch of really hoity-toity religious pastor's house. And so he's there with all these religious guys who are like super careful to dot all their I's and cross their religious T's. And this woman, who all we learn is she's a sinner, which means she has messed up publicly enough times to be publicly socially ostracized and labeled, hears about it and comes over into the middle of this. And there is so many social uncomfortable boundaries in this story being crossed. So it would be like Jesus being at dinner with a bunch of pastors and a prostitute hears that Jesus is there and comes in and is just hanging off of Jesus and weeping. And everybody else is scandalized. And Jesus could care less. He loves it. He just lets her do it and he welcomes her. So read what happens next. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, <laughs> if a man were a prophet, he would have known who, what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, pointing to this guy, I have something to say to you, which, whew, how'd you like Jesus say that to you? And he answered, say it, teacher, a certain money lender had two debtors. One, I'll translate this in our day, owed $500,000 and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon, this guy answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to him, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That would have been a common hospitality courtesy that they denied Jesus. And this woman saw that Jesus had been shamed socially. And so she, she goes to love him and do what the other people had not given him. It's amazing. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. That would have been another social courtesy. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased, ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst himself, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman heard the ram's horn blown. She heard the good news that Jesus was bringing. She heard about this guy who was bringing in a new era of jubilee, and she ran to him. And she experienced that liberation. 
but it had nothing to do with money or land, right? She carried, as we all do, a debt of sin and a debt of shame in her life, and she knew Jesus was the one who had come to preach the gospel to clear it. You see, it'd be amazing if all of a sudden all your credit card debt or student loans or medical bills or whatever you have would just, it was gone. But wouldn't be better if the deepest, darkest, most painful things that you carry in your life were lifted. The invisible burdens that we all carry with us. Those are eternal and Jesus lifts them. This is what Jesus has come to bring. He's come to proclaim liberty to captives. To just try and flesh this out a little more, uh, there's actually an awesome example of this kind of debt and suffering in the Grapes of Wrath, which is about the Dust Bowl. And uh, it's amazing because you have this physical misery happening, and Steinbeck puts in the middle the character of Uncle John. So if you like literature or the Grapes of Wrath, you'll know this. But Uncle John is this really sweet guy, but when his wife is young and pregnant, she tells him she has stomach pains. And Uncle John kind of ignores it, and it's like, ah, whatever, just deal with it. And she ends up dying because it was really serious along with her child. And Uncle John carries that event with him through everywhere they travel in the Dust Bowl to California and all over the roads like an albatross around his neck. It just shades every single part of his life. And so he spends the rest of his life trying to help as many people when they're sick as possible and doing good things and buying huge gifts for people to try to fill and pay the debt that he feels. And then every now and then he would just snap because he was strung so tight and he would binge drink or eat like a glutton or go to a brothel. And then Steinbeck would say he would wake up the next morning and just weep. And then he would revert to trying to do good deeds again to fill it. When I read The Grapes of Wrath for the first time, I was crushed by Uncle John's character. Absolutely crushed because I relate to it. That is a debt. And you see Uncle John trying to pay the debt. Now, it's probably different than Uncle John, but I wonder if you can relate to that in any way, shape, or form. Steinbeck wasn't even a Christian. He was just a human. He knew what it was like. When Jesus comes into your life, he proclaims liberty. I've just thought about it. Him coming to Uncle John, what this feels like, him preaching this in the synagogue is saying, Uncle John, give it to me. I can cancel it. I can pay it. Let me liberate you from that bondage. Be free. Feel my deep, deep rest and release and freedom. That's what I've been anointed to do. But how does Jesus pay the debt? How does he liberate us? He doesn't just say, it's all good. He doesn't just give you therapy. Jesus doesn't just come and like help you change your perspective and teach you that it's actually okay. You don't really feel anything. It's not bad. Just feel good about yourself. Jesus actually did something. He, he actually paid something that you can point to and that we can all experience. And what is that? That's the cross. That's why the center of our room, even though it's a gym, is a cross. The cross is the moment he pays the debt. The cross is the moment when out of his deep love for us, he goes to the debtor's prison of death so that we could feel the forgiveness 
if you're new to Christian things, um, Christianity can be just kind of intimidating. It's like, who is Jesus? And there's all these different churches and like history. Um, it can be really complex. If you have been in church for a super long time, Christianity can become super complex and it's easy to make it more complicated than it actually is. I do this for a living and I make it very complicated for myself sometimes and I have been floored this week by the simplicity of the gospel. It's as simple as the woman wiping oil into Jesus' feet with her hair. It's acknowledging your need. It's hearing that Jesus is the one who brings freedom and it's opening yourself up to his freedom and saying, yeah, I want that. And it's knowing in the heart of your hearts that Jesus has done everything he needed to do to pay the debt. When Jesus died, he said what? It's finished. Can you imagine Uncle John? Think of your Uncle John thing, whatever that might be, whatever's on your heart right now. Jesus coming and saying, it's done. You don't need to feel shame for that anymore. It's finished. That's the gospel. It's super simple. Don't overcomplicate it. So when Jesus reads this in the synagogue, he's dropping the mic and he's saying, that's why I'm here. And what I love about this, this is really important. This era of Jubilee is for the whole physical world and the whole eternal person. Um, some people will say the gospel is all just about your sins, like this invisible stuff. Some people will say it's all just about uh, political or social justice. And people will use this text to prove either one of those points. Both of those are wrong. <laughs> it's about everything. The whole physical world, the whole eternal person. Where the kingdom of God goes, justice is done. There's actual liberation. This is genuine good news for the genuine poor. But it's not different than that. It's just broader than that. The whole physical world, the kingdom of God, is bringing justice and ending slavery. And the whole eternal person. It's for you. It's for me. It's all of Madison. And our existence as a community is to open ourselves up to the jubilee of Jesus Christ. And then tell other people that it's happening. To send the Amber Alerts out. Amen. Um, now, I would love to finish there, but I can't because up to this point, we've only covered half of the story. And I actually want us to be a kind of church and a culture where if you're reading a passage and you see that we stop like only in a certain way, say, hey, you didn't talk about that like second half that actually is much different than this. And you should hold me and all people who are giving the sense accountable to that. Because Jesus starts with talking about liberty and this passage ends with the people who are hearing him say this literally trying to throw him off a cliff. Did you notice that? Literally, he says, I've come to preach good news to the poor and bring liberty, like the greatest possible stump speech ever. And they try to chuck him off a cliff. Pounding my, my, <laughs> okay, so look with me at verse 22 for a second. This is right after he finishes. And all, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So have, they have this initial reaction of, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Listen to this guy talk. But then let's read on. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? They're like, this is the carpenter's kid, right? Who does this guy think he is? 
So they probably know him. This is his hometown. Jesus' familiarity was a scandal to them. Um, you know, the prophet isn't welcome in his hometown, quoting Jesus. But I don't think they tried to kill him because he was familiar. I think it's deeper than that. Um, we as humans do this thing where when we feel God moving, and especially if anything involves exposing something about you, we, like rock climbing, quickly try and grope for some technicality that becomes a handhold that we can use to reject it. Um, I do this, I can say that because I do it all the time. Uh, you know it in relationships even better. You're in an argument, you know you're probably wrong. I do this with Marissa a lot, unfortunately. But then I grope for a technicality, and then when I grip it, I rip it. I devote myself to that stupid technicality to try to not have to admit that I'm wrong. Give me a nod. You guys know what I'm talking about? We do the same thing with God when the Holy Spirit starts convicting us. I think Jesus' familiarity here, I could be wrong on this, but I think it's a technicality because when you keep on reading, it gets deeper. I think this handhold to defend themselves against the liberty of Jesus because his message implies that we are captive. And these people don't like that. Remember in the story about the woman, Jesus says that the one who has the greater debt and is forgiven is the one who lives with the most love, the most freely. The religious guys get super angry because they don't think they have any debt. They don't think they're slaves to anyone. And Jesus repeatedly says throughout all the gospels, yes, you are. Everybody is just the same. I thought a lot of this week about why the heck didn't the people celebrate the year of Jubilee? Isn't that amazing? Like, I don't know why. It would have brought so much justice. It would have helped the land. It would have protected the whole country and nation from a dust bowl on like social and physical levels. But they didn't. And I think the answer is sin. Greed exploitation, the comfort of wealth. Whenever more land was going to somebody, somebody was getting wealthy and enjoying what was happening because of the changes in society or whatever. But guess who would have loved and been ready for the year of Jubilee? Slaves. They were ready for it. They were open. They were hungry for the year of the Lord's favor. And it is exactly the same with the gospel of Jesus. It's good news for who? From this, everyone, but Jesus here, it's good news for the poor. Jesus says later, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are, who are in touch with their need, who know it, who feel it, and are aware of it, love Jesus. We're so ready for his message. That sweet, wonderful woman who has been recorded in all of history. Imagine her down. She's wiping her hair, oil mixed with her tears into the feet of Jesus. She loved him because she was in touch with her debt. She knew it. But the Pharisees resisted him. They hated his message because Jesus' liberty challenges our self-sufficiency. It challenges our self-righteousness. And when we aren't ready to hear that, we grope for a technicality, some reason to excuse the way that God might be bringing that liberty to avoid it, and we ask to get rid of Jesus. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says later, it's really hard for rich folks to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
because when you're wealthy, even physically, it just kind of does this thing where you think like, man, I'm amazing. I've like accomplished so much for myself. Look at the ways that I've worked so hard and done all this. And it keeps you out of touch with your needs, physically and spiritually, but not so the poor. And that's why this is good news for the poor. The poor in spirit, the physically poor. All you need to come to Jesus, hear me, is your need. Amen? You should make t-shirts that say that. Christ Church Madison, all you need is your need. All you need is your need. But sometimes bringing your need is hard. It is an obstacle because it requires us to say that we do need. Um, but something our bishop often says is we are unashamed to need Jesus. I'm not ashamed to need Jesus. We all need him. This story ends with people trying to throw Jesus off the cliff. And I think the significance of this is that you can't squelch Jesus. You can't squelch his jubilee. You can't wipe him out. When he died on the cross, he did it intentionally. And he says, I laid it down. Nobody took it from me. But his new day is rising. The sun is coming up. And it's for you and me. So if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Don't go for a technicality. Open up yourself to the jubilee of Jesus Christ. We think that he's doing that in our community right now. He's bringing that in more and more people in all of our hearts. doesn't matter if you're here for the church for the first time or you have been your whole life. It still is for you. Amen? Amen. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen.